Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Behind the Gothic Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, where the five-hour coronation of Napoleon took place on the 2nd of December 1804, is a garden. These days it's peaceful, a sanctuary for tourists. But in the 19th century, this was the location of the Paris morgue. On busy days, the space outside was the place to be. Old ladies sold waffles to children in the queue, and a macabre buzz of excitement filled the air whenever a morgue wagon rolled by. Inside the morgue itself, there was a large hall with a series of gigantic panes of glass at one end. The crowd pressed against them as if these were the windows of one of Paris's famous department stores. But instead of gawping at the latest fashions, they were looking at corpses. Two rows of six bodies laid out on slabs completely naked. A gentle stream of icy water falling onto each of them to delay the ravages of death. Welcome to After Dark. We are talking this episode about the Paris Morgue. Now, I don't know about you, Anthony, but I hadn't heard of this before. I don't know how we hadn't heard of this. Paris Catacombs, sure, sure. So our guest today is not talking about the Paris Catacombs, but no. she is She is a Paris cat. She is, cat <laughs> is... Very good. Nice, nicely done. I'm, I'm pleased with myself. Cat Bias is, you are a historian working on a PhD all about the Paris Morgue and other international morgues. We'll get into that. You research... Just sounds absolutely fascinating. So you work on crime scene photography. I'm right, I think, in thinking that you are a photographer as well, that you do some of your own photography, is that right? Yes, I do, although not of crime scenes, <laughs> of food. I worked in food before I got into morgues. So yeah, there are some overlaps between food photography and morgue photography that you wouldn't expect. But, I mean, we need to talk still, about them. So, yeah. Absolutely incredible. So we're, we're going to talk about the Paris morgues. Just give us an overview of what they are, because... I had no idea that they existed. Yeah, so basically the first ever modern morgue was established in Paris in 1804 and that basically became the model for morgues around the world. The inspiration for starting it, they'd, they'd had versions of the morgue or a morgue in Paris for, for hundreds of years. It was essentially a, a basement where bodies that were found in the streets or in the river were kind of just 
piled up on top of each other. And if someone had gone missing, you could just go and look through this grate and <laughs> see if you could recognise your cousin. So this was what was there before? Yeah, before yes. the morgue. Yeah, so this yeah. is, we're talking from like kind of the 1400s onwards. Um, and then for a couple of reasons, mostly to do with uh, massive population growth in the kind of just before the, the 19th century and then also kind of a change in policing and there's more interest in surveillance and kind of modern policing techniques and this interest in knowing who was who and who was in the city. They, they established the first ever morgue in 1804. Shall I tell you what they're not? Shall I tell you what the morgue is not? It is not the catacombs, right? It is not the because catacombs. Because we started this with producer Freddie and history hit Beth talking about the catacombs which were doing the rounds on TikTok. Like, Mm -hmm. apparently they were having this viral moment on TikTok. Can you tell us a little bit about what the catacombs are and what they're not (laughs) and how they're different from the morgue? Just just for anyone who's coming to this topic via TikTok. Yeah, so... I mean, the morgue is is fresh dead. I'm going to put it that way. So, yeah, thank you. Basically, the morgue is people who've just very recently died and are being put on display or for the purpose of identifying people. The catacombs is where the bones of over six million Parisians are stored. So the catacombs, essentially that space was was previously a quarry from when Paris was being built and they had to empty out the cemeteries in the kind of mid-1700s because they were getting overcrowded and various different reasons. And so they put them all down there basically. Mm. And then it became an attraction itself eventually and they, they made these sort of, I don't know if you've, have you been to the catacombs? I actually haven't. Oh, it's great. I went on my birthday one year. It's oh my God. <laughs> Obviously. It's That's an ideal birthday. It's a really good Very much on my to-do I'm really interested in people visiting these sites because yeah. something that's come up in the, the notes that we're going to uh, talk through is this idea of dark tourism Mm. and this is quite a modern term but it really can be applied to more historic visiting can't it and the morgues and I would say the catacombs as well kind of fall into that category so can you explain to us what dark tourism is? Yeah absolutely so I mean dark tourism as a concept I think the phrase has only been coined relatively recently but it's this idea of visiting dark sites or places where deaths or mass murder or, or genocide in some cases occurred and people often who have discussed the morgue sometimes refer to it as a as a as a dark tourism site because people used to go there to see the bodies and it was it was a fun activity. It was the best free theatre in Paris and it used to draw in absolutely enormous crowds. You could get up to 40,000 people a day when there was a quote, popular body on display. So, so the, w- sorry to interrupt you, Kat, but what, what constituted a popular body in this period? Is there, Are they celebrities? Are they people who've died in particularly gruesome ways what what is the attraction so basically it's um the more kind of coincides with the rise of the tabloid press mm. as well so there would be a you know a murder written about in the press and they would say that the body was on display in the morgue or a suicide or something like that and people would read about that and then go to the morgue to see the body so it's kind of a bit of like a living in a real life crime novel and that you could go and it would also be serialized you know the updates have they found anybody have they found a potential the murderer or anything like that are there any updates in the case and then the trial perhaps would be serialized as well so yeah essentially there would then be these kind of popular bodies that people would read about in the certain cases throughout the periods and there would be an absolute rush on the morgue of everyone going to to see them we come up against this so often on after dark where we think this concept of true crime or the interest in true crime is a modern phenomenon where people have been drawn to these things and it says something about our own time, it says something about the times we live in. But actually, what we have found over and over again is that this is, as long as there's been people, there's been an interest in how people are dying. And the more gruesome, the more interesting. And this seems to 
really encapsulate that in a very, you know, cheek by jowl kind of way. So tell us, when did it open? What What is the context of the Paris Morgue officially coming into place? At the, It's the beginning of the 19th century, right? Yeah. So the fact there's actually two Paris Morgues, ah. they kind of blend together. So it first opened in 1804. As I said, it was kind of originally born out of this weird basement prison space. And then it was formalised and they created this morgue in 1804. But after, what, 60 years, the population had then grown and grown again and it was just too small. And there was also very limited kind of scientific and forensic facilities at that point. And then they decided to build a new one and this is also coinciding with Usman kind of bulldozing, mm. bulldozing, not technically the word, but like half of Ile de la Cité. And so then they built a new one which was much, much bigger, which was just under Notre Dame and that was in 1864 and that lasted until 1907. Do people pay to go in and see these bodies? No, it was free. You charge, wouldn't you, Maddie? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely free. free visitor. Yeah, absolutely free. And it was listed in attractions in the newspaper alongside the Louvre and other places. So it was like, these are the opening hours. Go check yeah. it out. So presumably if it was free, there's a real diversity in the kinds of people who are going to this space, that it's all classes of society, all genders, all ages, potentially everyone in the in the city is coming and visitors to the city as well to come and see this. Yeah, absolutely everybody. So you would have, like you say, all classes of society, all ages, there would be children in the morgue and yeah, tourists. It was a very, very big tourist attraction. So people would come from abroad if they were visiting Paris and, and pop in to see the, the bodies as like an unmissable site because there was nowhere else like it. And did Parisians just rock up? Well, like, mm. obviously people are coming, but, you know, if you just popped out of your just Parisian... Just a Saturday yeah, afternoon just like, activity. Ah, I'll go and see the dead. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? well, I mean, absolutely. It's a, it's a thing to do. I think, obviously, people also did go to try and identify yes. the dead. So it did have a very important civic function. But there was plenty of people who just went for a big day out. Probably most people, I'm imagining, it, it, that most people went for the tourism day out element. Or or was it far more functional than that? I think, I mean, it's hard to know numbers of exactly how many people were going for what yeah. purpose. But it, it was a very much a functional municipal site. So especially bodies that were, again, less popular. So obviously when they had these huge crowds, it would be a lot of people would be coming because they'd read about it. But there were plenty of people who went to identify somebody because the problem in this period as well is that we've got this massive population growth and there's also a lot of people coming into Paris to perhaps work in sort of labouring jobs or industrial jobs and they don't have strong social ties. So if they die in mm. the streets or in the river, it's hard to immediately identify them. So you need a site these people can be brought to and then identified. So the morgue is sort of reflecting that huge societal change that's going on. It's a, a good mirror for that. Something that's coming up for me is this kind of ethical issue. So really the morgue has these two almost opposing functions, really. On the one hand, it's administrative, it's the way that people can identify people they potentially know and love who've died. And then on the other hand, it's people just coming for a Saturday afternoon activity. Anthony clearly would be one of these from what he's saying. I was saying. not alive in Paris in 1804, whatever, whatever yeah. rumours you've heard are Looking entirely phenomenal untrue. for that. You look fantastic. Um, yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, we'll get to your skincare routine in a minute. Um, were there issues? Did people see it as being potentially unethical to go and gawp at these dead people? I mean, absolutely. Throughout the period, there were discussions that would you know kind of peak and then go down again of people saying that it was wrong to expose the bodies and also one of the main concerns was that it would uh, inspire criminal activity mm. 
so that people would go and see the bodies. I, I, I can't imagine why it would inspire criminal activity, but there was this fear that especially for children and people that, you know, younger people going or, you know, people from the kind of like labouring classes who they always, they always had these fears in the period about sort of degeneracy and there was all these kind mm-hmm. of social ideas. And yeah, there were fears that it would, and that was in, essentially why it closed. Yeah. Because they thought that it was actually um, no longer appropriate to expose I mean, expose it, it makes total sense, that fear about, the fact that it might provoke kind of theatrical crimes as well. Mm. You know, you think just across the channel in the 1880s, we've got the Jack the Ripper killings Mm. in Whitechapel and that kind of the theatricality that comes with that, not only in terms of how those bodies are treated, those poor women, but also the sort of audience reaction. And there are waxworks made recreating some of the crime scenes and things like that. And you can see how that anxiety presumably existed in Paris as well in the 19th century. And that I know it's a little bit later, we're talking slightly earlier here, but that that fear that, as you say, the word sort of degeneracy, that, that there might be a, a prompting of criminal activity, criminal tendency, I suppose, that maybe that kind of having bodies and particularly murders on display might prompt more similar crimes or worse crimes even. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting you say about, you know, across the channel because you'd often find English writers or Anglophone writers talking about the morgue and being like, oh, it's so French and they're so, you know, they're so macabre. We would never do that here. And then they would all go to Paris on holiday, (laughs) go to the morgue. But there was very much this judgment from outside of France of it being a real, yeah, macabre activity. And one of those examples is Charles Dickens, right? That just just doesn't surprise me at all. It makes perfect sense. It fits in with the image that we have of Dickens. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about any visits that he may have taken? Oh, I mean, he was just a big fan. Mm. He was a big morgue fan. He went on Christmas Day one year. Yeah. Real, real festive activity from wow. Charlie. Yeah, he loves so a he, bit of Christmas death. He does. Does. I mean, yeah. yeah, for the for Weird the writer guy. that's so associated with Christmas and a very kind of what is now quite a chocolate boxy mm. Christmas, that's an interesting thing for him to be doing on Christmas Day. Yeah, he's he's there writing about chocolate boxes, but in reality, he's looking at dead bodies. I think he once wrote that he was drawn by an invisible force to the morgue, which is an excuse. Yeah, he just went. Yeah, so he is a big fan. Quite a lot of writers. Edgar Allan Poe, obviously, the original goth boy. <laughs> he uh, he was a big fan. Emile Zola, mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. French writer, wrote a book called Thérèse Raquin, and the morgue features in the book. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's got a great description of the morgue and how sort of, these, sort of the the bodies and how kind of visceral they are. And this was also in the period before refrigeration, so they really are. The bodies are very much decaying. It's in the period when the ice, it's just still water. That ice water is, is yeah. quite gruesome, right, isn't it? I mean, I know yeah. it's just, the, but the, the description of trickling ice water is something really unsettling about that. You can hear us. It. It's mm-hmm. the audible thing of that ice trickling over the dead bodies. There's something to be said as well about the fact that these bodies are naked. Presumably mm. for most 19th century people, naked bodies are not something that you're encountering all of the time is this part of the appeal to go and it's almost like naked attraction now on TV, you know, but oh a, de- a really morbid oh version. Like, is, is this a reason why people are going? I'm never going to see naked attraction the same way now. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so they had a small like cloth covering the groin and towards the end of the period, they did start to display them clothed because I think, again, they were like, this is a bit weird. So there was definitely a voyeuristic element of the morgue. So a lot of people, yeah, wouldn't have seen a naked body, especially if you have kind of like young people going to the morgue. This is a chance to to see someone naked. So there's a very weird sexual side to the morgue as well that's quite grim. Mm. Well, Kat has very kindly provided us with some <laughs> imagery, which I think it's probably time we discuss 
So, I mean, help me here, Maddie, but I'll, I'll, I'll start off. What we have, we're looking at a group of relatively well-dressed people on the right-hand side of the picture. Not exclusively, but, but predominantly. And then on the left-hand side, gosh, it really is like it's a shop. It's big, open window panes. And beyond the window panes, then, is are these bodies that are laid out on look like sun loungers to me but obviously that's <laughs> not what they are and then above them and this is the this is the really interesting thing in a way are there I presume that that's their belongings what they were found in yeah so the clothing was hung on hooks behind the bodies and they're not sun loungers unfortunately they no, are well, they're black marble slabs so they're the same kind of slabs marble. that you the would French have the are so classy <laughs> so chic even in the morgue so it's kind of it's, it's like dissection tables essentially the same kind of idea and they would have you know the water would drain off them mm. and this is an image from Harper's Weekly I think it's 1879 this picture and as you can also see there's children mm. there right at the front row there's a railing to stop people getting too close yeah. to the glass you can't quite press up against it. That is really remarkable about the the clothes and the belongings being yeah. hung up. And I guess that's something that, you know, we're talking about all these people from different parts of society visiting, but also, of course, the dead are from all different walks of life. And you're kind of deconstructed when you're naked. There's not really anything readable potentially on your body. I suppose there'd be things like illnesses or injuries that you might be able to guess at someone's occupation or at least the mode of their death. But the fact that they then have their belongings with them, that's a very clear message to the onlookers of who that person was in life, that they, they're they not dehumanised to the extent you might imagine being laid out on a slab completely naked. That there's... I don't know whether it's a positive thing or not, but there's just so much information being mm. given there about yeah. who they are, for better or worse. Is is that something that people would be aware of? Do you think people would read those and say, oh, look at that person, that's a relatively wealthy person who's died. Look at his new waistcoat that he's got hanging up or look at that person with her tattered skirts. You know, would Would there be a sense of being able to read who the person was from this? There would, for sure. And the thing is, is that the majority of bodies actually did come much more from what were called kind of the popular classes or, you know, the dangerous classes. And very occasionally you would get a more sort of affluent body and that would be obvious from the clothing. But the majority were, were from a specific class, which is kind of a contrast to the crowd, which, like we say, is all classes of society. And the clothing was one of the major ways of identifying people as well. So exposing the bodies actually wasn't the most effective form of identification. Yeah. You can see from the records that actually it wasn't, yeah, it really wasn't that effective. But clothing and photography later in the period, these all really helped identify. And also investigations, so police investigations would help as well. But the clothing's really interesting and they still have swatches of some of it in the <gasps> archives. Wow. Yeah. It is. Still the... little pieces. And they used to also, at the entrance of the morgue, there was a kind of a glass cabinet. And so if there were certain items that were really would help with identifications, for example, a handkerchief with initials on it, they would also be displayed there. So especially after the body had gone, incredible. after the body by gone, I mean, decomposed too much to be put on display and buried, they they could keep certain items like that. So yes. there were bodies that could be identified. Still. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the clothes would be kept for a while. And then the clothes were sold at auction for a bit as well. That also was hugely valuable. Odd. Yeah. Mm. And also just, yeah, they could they raised money then for the mm. assistance publique. It says so much about the, the actual value of material things, and I don't mean necessarily textiles, but just objects in the 19th century that you only, especially if you're part of, as you say, the lower classes, that you would have a limited number of items that you owned that you would have on your person. 
and they would be the things that people would recognise as being yours because there'd be so few of them and you would use them all the time. That's absolutely incredible. You spoke a little bit there about the the police in relationship to the morgue and how a lot of these displays are used as a way of investigating crimes, trying to identify people. Can you tell us a little bit about how the police worked with the morgue? Are they running the morgue? Are they just popping in like these tourists and using it as a resource? How does that relationship work? So the, the morgue was run by the, the, by the police um, and it was very much a policing building. So the... You know, in the records, when they're talking about setting up the morgue, they say that the purpose is to identify sort of civil civil status of people. So it is part of this larger movement in this period of wanting to know who everybody is. And so obviously as well, because the morgue had very many victims of sudden death and accidents, but also of murders mm. and crimes, the police really did do a lot of investigations at the morgue. And there was specific rooms for police investigations, also for autopsies. So that was a very big thing that they were developing in this period, that a lot of autopsies would take place at the morgue. And are those happening on display? No, no, they're, they're kind of behind the scenes. So the the display room of the morgue and the place where the public come is kind of, the I guess, yeah, the front of the morgue. And then the back of the morgue is, is vast. There's an, in the second morgue, anyway, there's an amphitheatre for teaching. They used right. to hold forensics mm-hmm. classes. So there was also a relationship between the morgue and the medical school. So they would teach forensics classes there. And then there were all sorts of different rooms. There was a courtyard for photography. Can I ask you, you hinted earlier that there was a point at which the bodies were no longer fit to be on display. What was that point? When they decomposed too far to be What's too recognisable. Far? I mean... To be, to be rec- too far <laughs> to be unrecognisable. But that's quite far. I mean, yeah, again, it depends on the type of year, time of year in terms yeah. of decomposition. Obviously, it doesn't always... It, it, it changes depending on the weather and depending the on temperature, where the body's been found. Yeah. If you've been in the river for three weeks... Yes. You know, I've seen photographs of those bodies. You're not, you're not going to do very From well. From the 19th did, century? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, in the archives. No, I wouldn't recommend Mm-mm. looking at them. But yeah, so you would have, when it was the cold water situation, you'd probably have two to three days. Days. But then once fridges came in, you might have up to three weeks because they would just freeze them. Right. And then wheel them back out again. They actually had little wheels bring them in and out on. And they did also occasionally, again, with like a popular body, Replace body parts. So there was a woman who was. I know it just keeps going, doesn't it? Gifts that keeps on giving. There was a woman who was found cut into pieces. The case was literally called "The Woman Cut into Pieces," and her head had started decomposing, and they replaced it with a waxwork of her head. Of her own head. Of her head, yeah. To that's to try and and they did identify her in the end, so it did work. Her name was yeah. Jean Marie Lamanche. Yeah, she'd been murdered, obviously. So in a way. These sources lead us down lives that would otherwise have been lost, despite the fact that we have to come across them in such a gruesome way. Absolutely. And so many of them remained lost and Mm, still are lost because a huge number of people were never identified. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of bodies in the morgue every year and a significant portion were never identified. There was a statistic saying that I think one in every 5,000 Parisians ended up in the morgue at one point, which is quite a lot of people. Mm. And yeah, a huge number were never identified. Kat, you talked about the photography. Maddie, do you want to chat mm. us through one of there's a picture here that Kat has, has <laughs> given us. So Maddie, if you describe what you're seeing and then we'll get Kat to explain exactly what's happening. OK, so this is it's a black and white photograph. It looks to me that it's maybe taken, I don't know, around the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, judging from the clothes. There are, there are three men in the picture standing up who 
to my knowledge, they look alive, although we have done a lot on Victorian death <laughs> photography, so I'm never sure never in know. this period. And then there is another figure who is presumably the dead person who is in uh, a sort of reclining position on some kind of, looks almost like a hospital bed, or the sun loungers previously mentioned. There's a camera. One of the men to the left of the scene is setting up and, and working a camera. And there's what looks to be a wooden stick that is running, is being held up by one of the other men and it's running from the camera to the head of the dead person. Whether it's a measuring stick or something to kind of hold the body in position isn't really clear. There are letters labelling each of the figures. There's A, B and C under the three living men, which presumably, you know, refers to a little chart that tells us exactly who these individuals are. And the whole scene, I should have said, is taking place in what looks to be a courtyard. I'm guessing this is at the morgue. Cat, tell me how wrong I am. You are absolutely correct. So this is the courtyards of the morgue and this is the process of a body being photographed. So the image is from approximately 1900 and as we can see there is a body laid out on, I'm going to call it a wheelie bed. <laughs> Can't remember what the actual term is but it basically has a a rotate so the the back the angle of the the back can be oh yeah I see that um, yeah. can be moved yeah like, so like a hospital bed like a hospital bed or a sun lounger <laughs> or a sun lounger very similar to a sun lounger uh, I don't know if he's getting a tan in the image but yes yeah, so you get a tan if you're dead it's a pretty good question we should ask a scientist. Doctor? Sorry, sorry, Scientist. sorry, sorry. Tangent, tangent. <laughs> if you do the answer to that, do write in and tell us. Exactly. <laughs> Tanning. Do the dead need SPF? Oh, God. Um, it's just going to be more social pressures, isn't it, to be tanned when you die? Exactly. Anyway, sorry. Go Good on, looking back corpse to this. and all that. Anyway, yeah, so this is, they started photographing the bodies routinely and the police were some of the earliest adopters of photography in general, especially in France. And so this is, yeah, this is the police that are taking these images and they would then paste them in the morgue registers and they would display them at the front. And so the bodies, by taking photographs of the bodies, they were effectively immortalised. So despite the fact the body itself would decompose and then be buried, you could identify someone for a long time mm -hmm. after after they were no longer there. One of my favourite, two of my favourite facts about photography, one is that in the registers you can see them trying out different techniques. So you can see them, the backgrounds change, and the kind of, you know, you can see the bodies strapped down there. So these, these things are, they're trying out different techniques. And there's one period where a lot of the bodies are wearing hats, which I just refer to as the hat phase. Just are they the, the hats <laughs> that they come in <laughs> yeah. dead with? Oh, or they are they, the hats is it like there's a store box <laughs> like of a... lost property? That's... <laughs> it's, not, it's not like a party hat city. They're not just oh, like, God. wow. I thought it was just like novelty hats. <laughs> like Emily in Paris Berry. No, they're not angle. exactly. I have weird images in my head just then. Right, no, so this they... makes far more sense. Right. So okay. the hats that they came in with, but for okay. some reason there's a lot of hats and some of them are quite elaborate. With the idea, obviously, that if you knew someone with a hat in life, it might be mm -hmm. easier to identify them dead <laughs> yeah, with their hat. <laughs> yeah, but it really is. There's a lot of hats in this one. Um, and how long does the fat, the, the fat, the hat phrase last for? I mean, there's quite a lot of them in the 1880s. You're seeing a fair few hats in that decade in the registers, and then it just kind of fades. You know, they fade, they fade so the hats out. Yeah, so that was clearly they were trying a new a new technique. They also used to do things to the bodies to make them look more alive so they would put sort of like I guess like equivalent of like Vaseline on the lips they would sometimes put in fake eyeballs so you can also kind yeah. of see sometimes when the eyes look like they're really pinging open and you're like that's mm -hmm. not that's not real yeah. eyes and they also so they were still in this period trying to establish ways of kind of filing the photographs especially if you don't know who the people are how are you going to find oh. you know how are you going to 
find yeah, the yeah, photograph yeah. within the collection. And they came up with this technique, which was that they filed the photographs according to famous people of the time. So you would go hmm. to the morgue and say, I mean, like, the equivalent would be going to the morgue and being like, so... I'm looking for my cousin. He looks a bit like Donald Trump or something like that. And then they would be like, oh, <laughs> go look in the Donald Trump folder and then find a photograph. I would love to see what the Paris morgue Donald Trump I know. I don't know why that's the first person like. that came to mind. But I was like, Who's, who does everybody know the face of? Yeah. Wow. So that that's a so, fun. And that speaks back to the waxwork thing where so many waxworks in that period and even today are made of recognisable people. And in the morgue, they're sometimes rarely, being used to represent people who aren't known. There's something so interesting there about recognisability and invisibility of people, especially of lower classes, who've slipped from the historical record, even slipped from the records or didn't exist in any records, even in their own time when they die. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, a big part of the morgue is this anonymity. Yes. And it reflects the, the anonymity in this period in the city because, like I said, there's this huge influx of new people and we're entering into this period where it's much more possible to be anonymous in the city. And that also, you know, there was a lot of fears around that, about anonymity and crime, but also, you know, loneliness and all these kind of things in that in that period. And the morgue is such a reflection of that. And the bodies, even though they are theoretically identifiable with clothing and things like that, they also are kind of neutral in an odd way. They, they can mm. represent anybody because there's no... Yeah, a lot of them were never identified. I think that's the perfect place to have a little break. When we come back, we are going to be talking more about this idea of anonymity and recognisability in the world. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
The great river Seine that flows through Paris holds many sad secrets. One of them is the identity of the young woman who was fished out of the water near the Louvre Museum sometime in the 1880s. Who was she? How had she died? At the time, no one knew. And so the story goes that she was taken to the Paris morgue. When the pathologists saw her, they were struck by the expression on her face. It was so different from the other corpses they'd seen before, so serene. Had this unknown woman of the Seine seen something in the moment of death that lies beyond the veil? They carefully poured plaster over her face and made a death mask to capture that ineffable look. The death mask took on a life of its own. It spread around Europe, becoming a must-have piece of home decor for all poets and writers. It even found its way into the workshop of a Norwegian toy maker in the 1950s, who was building the world's first CPR doll. And so the unknown woman of the Seine transformed into Rescue Annie, the woman who has the most kissed lips in history. So, Kat, we were talking about anonymity before and the fact that lots of the bodies that made their way to the Paris morgue were people who were never identified and certainly people who weren't recognised to begin with when they arrived there. Now, Rescue Annie, or the Unknown Woman of the Scent, is possibly one of the most recognisable faces in the world now because she is the face of the CPR doll. I think it's so fascinating for so many reasons, this story, but... It's nice to think that some good has come from what was presumably a lonely death, a tragic death, and the life of a young woman about whom we know relatively little, if anything at all. Is this the most cited story that you come across in your research to do with the Paris Morgue? Is Rescue Annie someone who comes up again and again in your research? She definitely comes up again and again in terms of how people might have heard of the morgue. So if they have heard of it, obviously a lot of people haven't, they may have heard of it through this story or they may have heard the rumour that the the doll was based on a, a woman that had drowned and ended up in the Paris morgue. Mm. So the likelihood of this woman that the mask was based on having drowned and ended up in the morgue is pretty unlikely because oh. if you've been in the river for a while, your face probably doesn't look that unlined and serene. Oh. So it's most likely that the the mask is actually modelled on a living woman, and then the lore. Stop it. Yeah, and then the lore. I mean, does she look like she's been in the river for no. a while to you? No, yeah. I hadn't even thought about that though. Yeah, so she I doesn't mean, even look particularly dead. No, and well, this obviously is, there's so much about her. Now expression. that you said it, yeah, exactly. Now you think about it, doesn't mm. doesn't really look like a dead face. But no. she does. There were plenty of women who drowned and ended up in the morgue. So in that sense, she does kind of represent a lot of real women. Mm -hmm. And I think also the stories that built up around her, this tragic death, and there's one story that's kind of about that she was abandoned by a lover, and mm. one story that she was pregnant, all these different sort of yeah, tragic tales that very much encapsulate when we think of 19th century Paris and tragedy and these things. So she, she very much represents real stories, but that actual face being, having ended up in the morgue is, is unlikely. I also... She, I also can't find her in the records, right. so there's no evidence of her in the in the the morgue registers that were kept. 
But it's a fantastic story and it's a really interesting way into the morgue and it's an interesting example of how this institution influenced so many different things that we don't even realise. Mm. Mm. You know, like you're saying that it inspired all these artists and these writers and everything and all, so many so many roads lead back to the morgue. It also says so much say. about us and what mm. we need from this morgue, what we need from death, what we need from the history of death. And we need stories to placate our own fears and we need it to make sense and we need it to, we need it to, to mean something. And so by giving Rescue Annie all of this backstory and this tragic death, we somehow bizarrely comfort ourselves by saying, but look, there's a legacy. She lives on despite the anonymity. Especially the fact that she becomes the CPR mm. doll who, you know, you do CPR and so on in the hope that they will live. Mm. And that line between life and death and the sort of artifice of the doll, there's so much there about that imitation, about liveliness, about being still and being death that's uncanny to human beings. And I think she is uncanny, but she, I think she's hopeful. Do you agree, Kat? Yeah, I think also something about being remembered. So mm. obviously this idea that people died unidentified and no one ever knew who they were, she represents this idea of being like, just because we don't know who you are doesn't mean you're not remembered. Doesn't yes. mean that people aren't thinking about you and they don't remember you and like you say that you have this legacy. So there's something in that as well. And even something in the fact that people have tried so hard to identify her. Yeah. In that it's not, you're not just immediately forgotten. And I think about this sometimes with the morgue in that, so many people weren't identified, but it doesn't mean that nobody ever remembered them. You know, they had family, yeah. they had friends, they had colleagues, they had people in their lives. So even if nobody knew what happened to them and they were never formally identified, that doesn't mean that they were entirely forgotten. There are That's still people that would have thought about them. There are still people that would have talked about them. And Kat, so they're not they're not forgotten forever in that sense. You talk about your research and the morgue with such tenderness, really. <laughs> and I suppose I have two questions. First of all, what is it like to live with this research and to do it on a daily basis? You know, you're working towards your PhD on this. It's something that hopefully you'll continue to work on afterwards. I want a book. Yeah, <laughs> we, we want, we, we, we need the book. It. <laughs> we need the book. But also, what did the morgue mean to people in 19th century Paris? Were they all just full of morbid curiosity? Were they all strangely obsessed with death in a way that we aren't now? Um, or... Oh, can we be more generous in our understanding of how they understood the morgue? I think it's very human to be fascinated by death and taboo and, you know, even like you're saying about the bodies being naked. I think all these things are very yeah, human fascinations that have endured as long as there have been humans. So I think in that sense, I don't think this is a particularly rare idea that people would want to go to the morgue. I think if it was open today, we would I mean, we would all definitely go. But I think a lot of people... We do a live episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Coming to you from the morgue. <laughs> but I think that a lot of people would go. Mm. And I think obviously there was a, a different relationship to death in the period and it was we, they were closer to it in lots of ways than we are today. But I think it's it's human in that way. And I think, you know, we watch true crime documentaries and we listen to true crime podcasts and all these kinds of things. How different is that to reading about a murder in the tabloids and going to the morgue to see the body, you know, or going to, you know, Body World's exhibition. Mm, These yeah. things are not that different. It's just a different way of doing it. And now we have the distance of technology and so there's a bit of a gap. And, you know, obviously we don't go and see live executions anymore, but I don't think it's so different. Mm. I think it's very human. And I think also, like we're saying with the morgue and it not just being a morbid and macabre place, 
lots of people did go to try and identify somebody. Yes. And I think even when we're thinking of these popular bodies and these huge crowds, some of them did maybe go just because it was the place to go and it was a thing to see. But a lot of people may also have gone because they were like, maybe I can help, mm. you know, and some of the most popular bodies were, say, children that were on display who had been found. And there were, you know, people were writing about, like, we want to find them. We want to find out who they are. Why can't we figure out who these children are? We need, you know, we need to find their next of kin. So it wasn't just that everyone was being, I don't know, just exposing them for the sake of entertainment. There was genuinely a desire to try and reunite these people with their families and, and put them to rest. I hadn't even thought about the fact that children would have been displayed. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's mm. part of it, but it just doesn't, you, your mind or my mind didn't go there. But one of the things I don't buy just on what you're talking about is when a lot of people talk about public executions in the 18th century, let's say, and how big a draw they were. And you could be looking at up to 100,000 people for really prolific criminals being, or in some cases, they weren't even criminals, um, being hanged. And you often get this historian or this interview back, back view on it where they go, I mean, I just can't imagine going. I mean, um, try imagining a bit harder then because you probably would have gone because that's what people did. It's it's it, it's just not it's just not conceivable to me. Of course, there were people even in the context of the time that were saying this is a little bit macabre. We shouldn't be going to see this. But the vast majority of people were attending these executions. And in in the, it's in the context of its time, the morgue makes absolute sense that people will go and view these bodies, just as you're saying as we do when we watch the latest Netflix documentary on whatever true crime case it is, we we can relate to this because we're doing it too in, in our own various ways. Absolutely. And like you say, we all exist within our own cultural and social context of the period that we live in. So it's impossible for us to say what people will look back on 100 years from now mm. and be like, that's really weird yeah. that they were doing that. And we also, you know, if we exist in the 19th century, we have no idea what we would do. And it's the same with a lot of sort of social ideas that now we consider to be, you know, really wrong. We don't know how we would have, we like to think that we would be on the right side of history, but we have no idea. You know, we have no idea the upbringing we would have had or the social context around us, the cultural context around us that might have changed how we would have approached things. I think that's a fantastic note to end on. And I think it's something for people to think about as well, having listened to this, about whether they would go to the morgue if they were in 19th century Paris. Kat, thank you so much for the most fascinating chat. And actually, I feel I feel like I have been to the morgue now. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> I really do. Before we sign off, can I give a fact that is in my briefing notes here? <laughs> Apparently, the Michael Jackson song, Annie, Are You OK?, is about the CPR doll. No, it's yeah, not. It is, it is yeah. <laughs> Is that really yeah, true? Yeah, it actually is a fact that it's true. What was he singing about? She's clearly not okay. <laughs> Apparently, I don't know. I think it's something that with the doll, are you not meant to say? I don't know why you say that to the doll. Is it the rhythm? Is it maybe from. the rhythm of CPR? No, the rhythm staying is alive. staying alive. Ironically. Ah. That is bizarre. Of all the factoids that we come across on this on this show, that, that's up there. Yeah, that's going to stay with me. I'm going to have to listen to that now. I know. Yeah. I, I, I am going to have to yeah. listen to and it. And to play us out. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. can't get the rights. Endless endless facts out of the morgue, I tell you. I'm kind of jealous of your topic. It's absolutely fascinating. Kat, thank you so, so much. Thank for you so much for in. having me. This has been great. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed After Dark, you can listen to our back catalogue of episodes and do leave us a review. We love to hear from you and it helps more people discover us. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.